Hi everybody, I'm Scott McKee and I want to welcome those of you that might just be joining us now. Today's a special day for several reasons. Uh, first of all, today is the first day that children's ministry is resuming in-person, on-site children's ministry programs. And this is really exciting now, so on Sunday mornings, you can come worship now in the church building at 9.30 or 11 o'clock and enroll your kids in programs. Uh, kids birth through grade five. So when you're ready, and I know not all of you are ready to come back to a building, but when you're ready, we will be ready to receive you face to face. The other reason it's a big Sunday is today is communion. We don't do that every Sunday in our church, but at the end of this service, I will be extending an invitation to the Lord's Supper. And if you're located at home or somewhere where you can join us, you're invited to do so. You will need to provide, of course, your own bread and juice. And again, any kind of bread or cracker will work just fine. Any kind of juice and cup will work just fine. In fact, I've said before, uh, the more ordinary, the better. Because in sacrament, God takes the ordinary and sets it apart as extraordinary the common for the uncommon. So anyway, you wanna get your supplies together if you wanna participate in that, we'll do that at the very end. And the third reason it's a special Sunday is today we start a brand new sermon series and a brand new small group series. Over the next eight weeks, we're gonna work our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we'll talk about it on Sunday morning, and then we're gonna talk about it in small groups. And we have hundreds of small groups. Some of them will meet in homes and some of them will meet exclusively online. Now the time to sign up for a new group has passed, but here's a little secret. All of the curriculum and videos and material are available on the website right now for free. Wherever you can uh, find uh, sermons on demand, on the Ward Church app, on the website, there it is, eight video lessons and a, and a curriculum to walk through that. So it's not too late to grab some friends and put together your own small group or to work through the materials uh, as a family and join us on this journey through the Philippians. Today we'll introduce the letter and uh, just look at the opening paragraphs. Uh, so you know that a few weeks ago my mother passed away and she was a good mom. She was 92 years old when she passed. So I got to have my mom longer than most people get to have their moms, and I am blessed. But over the last few weeks, my sister, sisters and I began the arduous task of going through her belongings in her condo and trying to put her affairs in order. And we came across several boxes of photographs that were just amazing. And inside the box were a couple letters as well. And the letters, uh, we're not even sure who this family member is that mom was corresponding with, but apparently they had a pen pal type relationship. And one of the letters in handwriting said, my dearest Lenora, how glad I was to receive your letter. And then she went on and talked about what was going on in her life, signed Kathy. We're not even sure who, who Kathy is. But it's so wonderful, so, so real, so personal. Um, some of it, we don't have mom's letter, but through contextual clues, you can figure out the contents of what, what mom wrote, written at a, at a precise moment in time, capturing uh, a, a contextual moment, such, such, such a treasure. And all of that is true of the letters that are contained in the Bible. 
Most of the New Testament books are actually letters from real people in real relationship, in real time, in a context. And sometimes you got to use some contextual clues to figure out what's going on, but they're a treasure to the church and a treasure to us. And the letter that we're going to look at today and in the weeks to come was written by a real person. His name was Paul. Before that, his name was Saul. And he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. You heard his story earlier. Paul was a persecutor of Christians. And then he met the risen Jesus. And he became the greatest missionary and church planter of all time. Take a look at this map. This will be really helpful, especially to those of you that might be new to the Bible. Paul, you may know him as the Apostle Paul, was here in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Antioch, Tarsus, kind of home base cities for Paul. And then he began these journeys. This is one of them kind of mapped out. And you can see that he visited cities with names like Philippi and Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth and Ephesus. Galatia is not a city, but a region. And the Apostle Paul would travel to these places and he would preach the gospel and usually start a church. And then he would move on. And then he would write letters back to these churches. So again, the letter he wrote to the people of Philippi is called Philippians. Philippians is what you call people who live in a city named Philippi. And then Thessalonica, the letters there are the Thessalonians. And down in Corinth, we have two of Paul's letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And we have the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Paul did write a letter to the Romans. He wrote that letter actually before he ever visited Rome. All the other letters were written after his visit, sometimes much after. In the case of Paul's letter to the Philippians, he wrote that letter to them about 10 years after he had left. It's a very warm and personal letter, more than the other letters. And I know I know pastors aren't supposed to have favorites, and I don't know if that's what's going on here, but you certainly can tell in word and tone that Paul has a special place in his heart for the Philippian people. And the whole purpose of this letter is encouragement, which is somewhat ironic when we learn that Paul is writing this letter from Rome, not where he's visiting as a tourist or a church planter. He's in Rome because he's in jail. Now, you might guess a letter of encouragement might be part of a story of someone in jail. But we would think that the letter is written by the people who aren't in jail to the person who is in jail to encourage them. But here's the other way around. The guy in jail writes a letter of encouragement to the people who are free. Because captivity takes various forms. And Paul says, I'm in physical chains in jail. But you may know chains of other kinds. And you're going to be okay. You can have joy in all circumstances. The thread that runs through this entire letter is the thread of joy. That word joy or rejoice is used 16 times in this very short letter. It's a very joyful letter. And I think joy is what our world needs most right now. You know, the news that we hear and watch tends to focus on the dire and the tragic. Uh, how often do you feel joyful after watching the news? Uh, anybody feel joyful after watching a presidential debate? Uh, even the weather forecast 
tends to be spun in its most negative way of expressing it. Uh, the weather person says, today it'll be, it'll be partly cloudy with a 20% chance of rain. Right? Why, why, why didn't he say, it, it, today's mostly clear with an 80% chance of sunshine? Uh, it is so easy to tend toward the negative, and Philippians is a very optimistic letter. We are calling our journey through Philippians, even now, finding joy in the journey. Even now, finding joy in the journey. Because a lot of people today are wondering, is joy available even now? In the midst of a pandemic? In the midst of a contested presidential election? Is joy available in loss? Is joy available when I've lost my health? Is joy available when life seems to be falling apart? And Paul wants you to know that the answer is a resounding yes. Even now, joy is available, and we're going to learn how. Philippians is also one of the most famous books in the Bible because it has some of the most famous lines in the Bible. Uh, see if any of these sound familiar to you from Philippians. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That's in Philippians. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Rejoice in the Lord always. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. For many of you, uh, one of these lines or more will ring a bell, but they might not mean what you think they mean. Well, let's dive into our study. Here's how the letter begins. Turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, the letter of Paul to the people at Philippi. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A very standard uh, opening to an ancient letter. And Paul calls the people in Philippi saints. Saints. Not, not, not some of them. All of them. Imagine being part of a church where every single person that's part of that church is a saint. Well, you are part of one of those churches. Every church is one of those churches. One of the most sweeping and dramatic claims of the Bible is that every follower of Jesus is a saint. That's what Paul says. Now, I know what uh, not, not, not will be a saint, not could be a saint, is a saint. That is our new identity in Christ Jesus. And I know some of you are thinking, I, I, don't, I don't feel very saint-like. I don't feel very saintly. Uh, me neither. But I am one, and so are you, if you are a follower of Jesus. The meaning of the word saint is people who are set apart. People who are set apart. Now, your Bible might not use the word saint. It might say holy ones. Same idea. Holy means set apart. Set apart ones. The moment you commit your life to Jesus Christ as forgiver and leader, something dramatic happens to your spiritual position. The Bible says you were once dead, and now you're alive. You were once far from God, and now you are brought near. You were a stranger of God, and now you're his 
son or daughter. You were an alien, and now you're a citizen in the kingdom of God. You were once lost, and now you are found. It doesn't matter who you are, or how you've lived, or what you have done. When you come to Christ for forgiveness and enter into a relationship with God, you experience a dramatic identity change. God declares you set apart. God declares you holy. God declares you a saint. Karl Barth put it this way. He said, saints are unholy people who nevertheless as such have been singled out, claimed, and requisitioned by God for his control, for his use, for himself, who is holy. So what do we do with our sense of being a saint? We lean into it. We become who God has made us to be. We live into our new identities. We become functionally who we already are positionally. When you become a Christian, God has a very clear agenda for your life, and that is to make you like Jesus. It is to have you become who God has already declared you to be. It's as if God is saying, you are a saint, I will help you live that way. And that's what Paul brings out in this next section here. He gets to the first real paragraph of this great letter. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you, you Philippian Christians. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. There's the first use of that word. We're going to see it many times uh, still. I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Yeah, you hear that real personal tone there, the, the affection and the fondness uh, between, uh, between Paul and the Philippian Christians. You all see the very first mention of Paul being in chains in prison. But did you see the main takeaway from this first opening paragraph? The key point in this opening paragraph, and I want to pull it out just to make sure we don't miss it. Paul wrote, God... He, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion. Man, that is a line that people have grabbed onto for centuries. It is tweeted and shared as a word of encouragement. Why? Because it is a promise. God's not going to leave you on your own to form as a person, to form as a saint. God, who began this good work, that same God will carry it on to completion. God will bring that to be. You don't have to worry about God leaving you on your own. We talked earlier about how God has declared us a saint. We are declared a saint and we are being made a saint. Right? And this verse reminds us that God will be faithful to that saint-making work. God's not going to leave you alone. God is completely committed to your transformation, to making you more and more like Jesus. But there are two important things to remember here 
The first is the work has to be begun. The work that has begun, it's got to begin. So have you come to God in such a way that God's good work has begun? Have you started something with God? Is God more of a concept than God is a friend? Is God more of a theological idea than he is a father? You have to start and begin that relationship. And then, secondly, if it has truly begun, are you cooperating? Because completing God's work is not something that God does despite us. It's something God does with us. It is the work of God, to be sure, but God invites us into that. It's not independent of your choices. It works in concert with them. God will be faithful on his end of things, but there are things that you and I can do. Seek God. Be open. Be available. Be listening. Be present. Be intentional. And these are some of the things we're going to uh, hopefully work out together over these next uh, few weeks. So Paul encourages the Philippians by saying that God began this good work in you and God's not going to let you go. God's going to continue that on. Paul reminds them that they've got to be intentional in their spiritual growth. And then Paul prays. He prays for them this great prayer. It's a prayer that we can pray for each other. I think it's a prayer that some of you are going to want to pray for your kids and your grandkids. You're going to want to pray this for your friend and spouse. And let me read this prayer to you. Paul says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul prays that love take roots that love would abound so that people would grow in knowledge and depth of insight. Because if that happens, if, if love leads to knowledge and depth of insight, then maybe, just maybe, they will be able to discern how they ought to live their lives to the fullest. Start with love. Love will lead to, uh, to wisdom and knowledge, and that leads to discernment on how to live. Starts with love. When Paul talks about love, He's not talking about some, some emotion or things. He's talking about actions. He's talking about choices. Choices that are made in the context of love. So this means that the ultimate spiritual question is different than we might have thought. The ultimate spiritual growth question becomes this. What is the most loving thing I could do? Wrestling with that question is the best way to help love take root and lead to knowledge and depth of insight, which will help you and I know how to live. This is the question. What is the most loving thing I could do right now? What is the most loving thing I could say right now? What is the most loving thing I could think right now? What's the most loving thing I could believe right now? This is the question that will guide us to spiritual growth. So how do we know what the most loving thing is to do. How do, we, how do we know what that is? Well, we go to school on love. And a lot of this, in the book of Philippians, Paul will tell us that Jesus is the supreme example of love 
uh, by his life, by his death, by his resurrection. And we'll get there in just a few weeks. But for now, here's a very good description of love that comes from the same author, Paul. Uh, this letter written to a different church, but this is a very famous passage on love that will be familiar to many of you. How do we know what love is? If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, if I have knowledge and a, and a faith that can move mountains but, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And then here's the description. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. We'll stop there. What's the loving thing to do? It's whatever the most patient thing is to do. Whatever the most kind thing is to do. Whatever the least boastful thing is to do. Whatever the least self-seeking thing is to do. It, it means it's not the thing that dishonors somebody. It's what honors somebody else. That's the loving thing to do. It's, it's whatever protects and trusts and hopes and perseveres. You get a sense of where Paul is taking his readers. You are a saint. Now let's start developing you into that. That love would take root and they would work its way out in knowledge and depth of insight so that you would know how to live. There's an old uh, legend from England about two, uh, two men who were arrested and convicted for sheep stealing. And the magistrate sent them both to, to prison for a few years and ordered that the letter S be burned onto their foreheads with a hot iron so that no one would ever forget their crimes. When the jail term ended, one of the guys moved away from the area never to return. The second man dedicated his life to God. He decided to stay in the community and to serve others. And after a while, everyone was in this man's debt for the way he served them in times of hardship. The way he came alongside them in sickness and in loss and in famine. Uh, soon no one remembered or ever spoke of his previous crimes. When they talked about this man, they only talked about the way he moved with grace and love. One day, two small boys were watching this man as he walked by. And they asked their mother why he had an S on his forehead. And the mother said that she did not know, but that if she had to guess... It probably stood for saint. May each of us bear the mark of a saint. Let's pray. God, we have come to you as sinners, and you have called us saints. Continue the good work that you have begun in us. Become who you have proclaimed us to be. We pray today, along with those who would like to ask you, God, to begin your good work in them right now. For those who would say, God, today I make Jesus my forgiver and my leader. Come into my life, transform me. Help us all, Father, 
to demonstrate love to a broken and fragmented world. Our nation is divided by race and politics, by ideologies. May the church of Jesus Christ be different. God, may, may we be different. May the church be unified and loving and effective. Help us to model the kind of love described in the Bible and the kind of love demonstrated by Jesus to us and for us. As we come now to his table, to the sacrament instituted by Jesus himself, meet us in the bread and cup. May this be for us now a holy moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.